Hey, this is Jim, and you're listening to the podcast edition of the Jim Toth Show. Hear us live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Thank you very much, Sarah. How appropriate to bring in Ken Weave of Sportsnet with a little autograph, and you want to turn up the radio. Margaret Redwood, President and CEO of Cinnaboy Park Conservancy, is going to join me in the next segment, launched a Match Challenge fundraising campaign for the LEAF today. We're going to find out about that and why it's needed and also talk with Tori McNally about what we were talking with you. Thank you very much for the half an hour of phone calls and texts on a potential four-day work week. But Ken Weeb Sportsnet and uh, Sportsnet.ca, I should say, in 680 CJOB hockey coverage joins me now en route in Alberta after covering that sweep by the Avalanche. Ken, how are you? Jimmy, uh, tremendous. Uh, thank you for the musical interlude. That's very nice, and uh, we hope people are turning up the radio indeed. But, yeah, everything's good. Got to the Calgary airport here, and, yeah, what a, what a series. A little shorter than we expected. <laughs> yeah, I know you were kind of hoping just uh, as a fan to see a little bit more as well, and I think most people were. And I, honestly, Ken, that game last night, I thought Edmonton was going to pull it out, but in, in the end it was a, uh, maybe a tale of what these two teams are the Oilers just aren't deep enough to hold on to to get that game and also the Colorado Avalanche are so deep even with injuries that this is what happened yeah no doubt about that I mean electric atmosphere in the game yesterday I mean I think game three was you know kind of a little bit of a dud but game four was you know great uh, great atmosphere great fun uh Avalanche rally Oilers tie it late and Arturi Lekkonen who was very good against the Jets last year uh in the playoffs as well uh comes through with the clincher uh Kale, speaking of Calgary, man, Kale McCarr, <laughs> what an effort. Five, just a nice, easy five-pointer, uh, assisting on the winner. Uh, just an outstanding series, Jimmy. Uh, f- you know, nine points in the series. He's up to 22 in the playoffs. Fifth in scoring, never mind the fact they've swept two series. Uh, and Nathan McKinnon, to be honest, Jimmy, the Oilers kept him in check pretty much for most of the series. But all the goals he was in on were massive goals that really got his team going, including the game tire yesterday. But... Man, we talked all year about the Avalanche being the gold standard in the Central Division, and now they're four wins away from, you know, getting to the, you know, from getting to their actual goal after three disappointing second-round exits. Did so many people, including you and I, were waiting for for a playoff series with McDavid and McKinnon? Did it live up to the billing despite the sweep in your mind? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, I think that the both guys were very impactful, but I would say both teams did a good job of defending the other team's star in this series and uh, I mean obviously the injury to Leon Dreisettle was a massive factor but it didn't prevent him from getting four assists yesterday Jim on one leg uh, I mean what a way to, that he battled but yeah the two you know the two marquee names we know there's great players throughout the series but yeah I think that the Avalanche did a great job as a five-man unit and part of that is Makar I mean part of that is Makar and Taves on the back end but they had a real commitment to defending against Oh, we just dropped Ken. So let's call him on the cell phone and, and uh, see if we can get that connected or if the Opal can go back up. Uh, once again, Ken Weep, sportsnet.ca. Just recapping the Oilers Avalanche series he was covering starting in Denver and then the last two games in Edmonton. He's in the Calgary airport and we'll try to get connected with him again talking about that. And I, I'm wondering, you can let us know on, on the text line as well with everything else we're discussing, 780 I, for one, have been waiting for an Oilers-Avalanche series just to see McKinnon and McDavid go at it. I think for the past couple of years, the the three the argument around the three best players in the world have been McDavid, 
um, McKinnon and Nikita Kucherov in Tampa Bay. You can throw in your Crosby. You can throw in your Leon Dreisaitl as well. But I'm wondering if that uh, wasn't maybe uh, the the billing. I thought it was. Like, I thought it was some pretty good end-to-end, high-end hockey. So um, we appreciate that as well. Do we have Ken back now? No? Okay. Uh, we'll just get him on the cell phone. But I'm wondering if it lived up to your expectations as fans as well, just because of the four-game sweep and um, what we saw from both. Now, Dreisaitl was, again, as we said on Jets at noon, on that wonky ankle getting up four assists last night. It was outstanding uh, effort by him throughout the entire playoffs. Um, but that Colorado team is so deep. No Kadri yesterday, so that was interesting. Sorry, Ken, we dropped you out there just when you were delving into the idea of whether that uh, matchup that I think a lot of hockey fans have been waiting for a couple of years to see uh, lived up to the billing despite the sweep. Yeah, apologies. Uh, it was a great answer that nobody heard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not even the person uh, in line at Starbucks at the Calgary airport. Oh, exactly. Uh, no, I mean, I think that both teams did a great job of containing uh, the opposition superstar, but no one could contain Makar. I mean, uh, he was outstanding uh, to the point where I think Wayne Gretzky compared him on the TNT broadcast to having the similar kind of impact as Bobby Orr back in the day. But I saw great effort and determination from both McKinnon and McDavid in the series. They had an impact when they could. Uh, but to me, I just it was such a responsible job by both teams and the five-man units to kind of keep them under wraps. But again, McKinnon getting the game-tying goal coming out of the box and, you know, roofing that shot. I mean, that was outstanding. Uh, dry cycle, four assists on one leg. I mean, that was outstanding too. But to me, the series changed Jim in game three. McDavid shot out of the cannon on the first shift of the game. He scores. But then Evander Kane takes the silly penalty. That led to a suspension, and then the Oilers took another penalty. So McDavid has legs coming out of Game 3. The building's going bananas. And then he basically he had one penalty-killing shift, and he was not a real big factor for the remainder of the game in Game 3. And that was one the Oilers had to have to make it a series, and it just didn't happen for him. I mean, he made a couple of nice, you know, really good plays yesterday, but the Avalanche did a better – I mean, no matter what the points will tell you, the Avalanche did a better job – of containing McDavid than, than the Oilers did of containing the depth players that you touched on earlier. I mean, one night it's JT Comper coming out of the box and beating Evan Bouchard in a board battle after Bouchard hits the post, which would, would have given the Oilers the lead. Then it's Valerie Nichushkin scoring twice. Another day, it's, uh, you know, Miko Rantanen getting his offensive game going. You know, all we talked about going into this series, oh, Rantanen only has one empty net goal. Well, he scored in each of the four games and he was impactful. And then yesterday he moves to center when Nazem Kadri is unavailable. So you're right. The depth was definitely on the side of the avalanche. And I would say that the star players were equal, if not better, than the Oilers stars, even though they are the two guys at the top of the points race here in the playoffs. I want to ask you about Evander Kane. He and Zach Hyman are addressing the media right now in Edmonton, end of the season exit meetings. But what's his future in Edmonton and the National Hockey League? Is it... Is he going to go and, and cash in for some money? And I'm not trying to make fun of him. I'm just saying. I, nope. um, uh, I think that that's what I would do if I was in his situation. I need a big contract for as much money as I can get. Or is there a fit there in Edmonton that he might be willing to work on? Yeah, there's a really good fit there, obviously. And if you can play alongside Connor McDavid uh, or Leon Dreisettle, you'd probably give it strong consideration. But the other is going to have to move some chess pieces around in order to make room because with the playoff that Evander had in scoring those 13 goals, uh, he's put himself into a position where he's going to probably want to make somewhere between the, you know, the 7 million he made in 
San Jose on his AAV, or you know, even if he would take it, if a quote-unquote discount is five million, I mean, the Oilers still got to trade Tyson Berry and move some other things around in order to make that work. So, I mean, who's going to give a long-term security deal to Evander Kane? That's also another big question. What's the years? I mean, the Oilers, and talking to some people who cover the Oilers, they think that the Oilers would love to get him in on a three-year deal, but if that's the case, then they're probably going to have to pay a higher AAV than they're comfortable with. So there's a great little push and pull there. Evander definitely played well enough to generate some interest, but you know there'll be a certain portion of a you know buyer beware uh, attached to that as well, given some of the past history. But Evander did a great job of you know revitalizing his reputation, and he played great on the ice, uh, with the exception of the you know, the play from behind that knocked Kadri out of the series with a broken thumb and knocked him out of the series himself. So uh, that was a self selfish kind of play player in a vulnerable position. And it really hurt his team. Kyle Connor joined us today on jets at noon, talking about the lady Bing award. And we dove into a little bit about how he's still, even while well, if this season has changed his sort of best kept secret, um, and most underrated player in the National Hockey League. And he said, you know what, I don't worry about that, but if more requests come or if people want to talk about me or we'll get into it, I will. With him winning the Lady Bing last night, what were you hearing around the playoff game when it comes to Kyle Connor? Yeah, it's certainly interesting, right? I mean, Kyle's the kind of guy that kind of flies under the radar, in, in especially in the East, where they only see him maybe twice a year, once a year for the, for the reporters that don't travel. So, I mean, he's a guy who's very well-respected and, uh, people really talked about how he's rounded out his defensive portion of the game. Yes, there's still room for improvement, obviously, but the job that he did on the penalty killing side is something that gets noticed. And, you know, we talk about it all the time. I mean, you know, people circle Kale McCarr's number. They circle the 29 of Nathan McKinnon. And in Winnipeg, they circle 81, knowing that, guess what? You're going to try to make life difficult, take away time and space, be physical against them. But these are elusive players who don't get hit very often. So, uh, Kyle did a great job, definitely a deserving winner. And uh, to be quite frankly, uh, Jim, uh, I think that he should have been on more ballots. He was on a lot of ballots. Yes, 181 of the 195. But, I mean, if you look at the role he played, only taking two minor penalties while still being such an important contributor offensively and playing against the other team's best, you know, it's sometimes hard not to get into a position where you get your stick, you know, between somebody's legs and they accidentally trip them. Uh, he did just a great job on that front. But, uh, you know, an emerging star for sure. And I do think that here's the other part. The Jets need to be in the third round like Connor McDavid and Kale McCarr are in order for Kyle to get more national attention. But he's certainly trending upward. And here's the thing about Kyle. He's not satisfied with winning the Lady Bing. Uh, he'd like to get some votes for the Hart Trophy, even though he wouldn't o- outwardly campaign for it. Well, and he mentioned how great it is to win, but the Stanley Cup is the real trophy that he wants to get to, and I, I, I can understand that as well. Hey, great stuff, Ken. I really appreciate you doing it, especially on the road. Travel safe, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, my man. I look forward to getting out on the links together soon. Wow, so do I. So do I. Ken Weeb, sportsnet.ca. Right now, I welcome into the program Margaret Redmond, President and CEO of Cinnaboyne Park Conservancy, launched a Match Challenge fundraising campaign for the LEAF today. Good afternoon, Margaret. Tell us all about it. Good afternoon, Jim. Thank you for having me. Yes, today we um, we announced a match fundraising campaign uh, that is supported by the Richardson Foundation, who is going to match 
all donations that we receive in support of the LEAF project uh, between now and July 31st up to $1.5 million. So we have the potential to raise a total of $3 million for this incredible project that's taking shape as we speak. It's a great, sounds like a great initiative, Margaret. Can I ask you um, what the original cost to build the LEAF was and what the cost is now? Well, we're we're still on target with our last uh, announced uh, forecast of 130 million. Um, several years ago, we had hoped we could deliver the project in just under 100 million, and then uh, the the roof, which is a very unique roof, uh, which is a cable structure roof covered with a very unique uh, ETFE plastic, met with some engineering issues that had to be fixed, and so that put the project behind, and of course when you get behind, uh, that increases the cost of the project. But the good news is uh, we have really, you know, mostly kept pace with those increases through the generosity of government and through the generosity of donors, and from donors like the Richardson Foundation who have uh, given us this $1.5 million to allow us to put this match fundraising campaign out there and really encourage the entire community to give at any level and know that they'll be able to double the impact of their gift in support of this fantastic project. Indeed, and we'll get into how people can uh, do that as well and and where to find more information. But uh, anybody building anything now is having challenges, whether it's materials. Uh, What other challenges associated with this specific design have come up in the past couple of uh, years? Well, um, you know, uh, uh, on top of those challenges that that we I just spoke about, then we entered into a pandemic right around the time that we were moving our way through those challenges, and and that of course brought a myriad of challenges, both from how do you continue to run a construction site uh, when there's a pandemic uh, happening, and then of course you know you've referenced supply chain issues, cost of materials. We're experiencing all of those things that I'm sure all construction projects are facing. Uh, But, you know, we have a fantastic team of individuals, you know, responsible for the construction of this project that have uh, really soldiered on through all of these, um, you know, daunting challenges. And we're just, you know, really proud to be at the point where we are in spite of all those and, um, you know, looking forward to getting this project um, open to the public, hopefully before the end of this year. Indeed. Uh, can you let our listeners know how short uh, you are right now to finish the project? Well, we've uh, raised a total of 111, um, just over $111 million uh, to, against that forecasted $130 million uh, cost. We do, um, we do have financing in place that will ensure that we will get the project uh, to completion. We did um, last year set a goal to raise at least another $10 million from the private sector. I'm happy to say we've raised uh, almost $6 million against that now. And, you know, if we're successful in this matching challenge that we announced today, we'll, we'll be well on our way to, uh, to reaching the, that original $10 million. And, and we'll just keep going because the more we can raise, then we can uh, work to work down that uh, the debt that we'll otherwise be carrying into the future. Um, and so we'll just keep fundraising until we, we get it open. 
Yeah, for sure. And how do people do that? Let's get into that and how people can sure. sort of make these donations. Sure. There's a number of ways you can donate online at assiniboinepark.ca uh, backslash the leaf or just go to the assiniboinepark.ca website. You can call us at 9204-927-8080 or you can even pop into the pavilion at Assiniboine Park and talk to our our visitor services person that's there in the building. And I, I think most people have heard of the project or know a lot about it, but for those who maybe don't or need their, their memories refreshed, uh, tell us about the LEAF itself. Mm-hmm. Well, the LEAF is uh, a, in the southeast corner of the park, and it's indoor and outdoor gardens. We opened the outdoor gardens last summer, and they've just been you know so embraced by the public. And this last piece is the building that really crowns those gardens. Uh, So this is a massive horticultural attraction. So indoor, outdoor gardens, indoor will have a tropical, a Mediterranean climate, will have um, a display hall, will have a butterfly garden, there'll be a restaurant and an event space, an education space, both indoor and outdoor education classrooms. And it's, it's been designed to be a place that people will come and visit again and again because we are programming it uh, in a multitude of ways that every time you visit, you're going to experience something different, learn something different, and really it's it's a place that celebrates uh, our reliance on plants, the importance of plants across all cultures, across all time, and um, so it's, it's designed to be a celebration not just of cultural diversity, but of, of biodiversity and the importance of biodiversity. So a real connection between people and plants and people-plant stories. And Margaret, I can hear your enthusiasm for the project, and and I understand the need for this uh, great initiative, but I I also can imagine that there's been some extreme, you know, frustration with the delays and the cost overruns too. So um, uh, what kind of journey has this been for you to this point? Well, you know, we've we've brought a lot of fabulous things to life in the park and in the zoo, and uh, you know, none of them have been a completely smooth paths. And you know, I heard a saying once that said, you know, the most difficult journeys often take you to the most beautiful places. And and although there have been times this has been hard and challenging, you know, it, it I I feel like to bring something so magnificent to life. And expect that to be an easy journey probably is not realistic. And um, it's all going to be worth it in the end. When I walk into that building, um, even now before it's completely finished, it's all worth it. This is going to be an asset for generations and generations of Winnipeggers and Manitobans. It's going to be the pride of Canadians. Um, So it's been worth every minute. Assiniboinepark.ca forward slash the leaf 204-927-8080 or in person at the pavilion at Assiniboine Park between 9 and 5. Thank you for this, Margaret, and good luck. Thank you so much. The news coming up at 3 o'clock with Richard Cluche, Julie Buckingham. They'll join me in the next segment. We'll also get to that question of the day. And if you haven't yet, please do so. Go to cgob.com. And it has to do with what we're going to talk about next. Thousands of workers in the UK are testing a four-day work week as part of a pilot project. Would this work for you? Yes, I would love to give it a shot. No, too many people would take advantage. I already do a four-day work week. Uh, Get your votes in and we'll revisit it. 
in the next segment as we discuss it now with my next guest, Tori McNally, Director of Human Resource Services. How are you today, Tori? Thanks for doing this. I'm wonderful. How are you? Doing very well. I got a text that uh, some people say the four-day work week wouldn't work. I got texts that say it would work. It's intriguing. What about there's not enough workers now? How would that be affected? What have you learned about the idea or the concept of a four-day work week? Well, I think that a lot of people are um, trying to um, make employees, a lot of employers are trying to make employees happy. Um, And this is one of the options that seem to always come up and be uh, batted around. I mean, you really have to question whether um, the work time just inflates to to, uh, fill the space that we give it, um, or uh, would we not have enough time in a week uh, if we only had uh, four days to get it done? Does it depend specifically on the work, if this would work? I mean, we've heard from so many construction workers, and one of them was was kind of upset that just said, look, this doesn't work in my industry. Why are you talking about this? But there's so many other industries that I think it would work in, but it really would depend on maybe the kind of work. I think it depends on the kind of work. And I think there's lots of work where people Facebook scroll um, and uh, take some, you know, breaks throughout the day. Um, I also saw uh, Microsoft did a trial a couple of years ago um, and they said that it worked out great because, and this is the list of things they cut out to get um, more efficient. It was meetings were shorter. There were remote meetings and they cut out meetings deemed unnecessary. So do you, (laughs) there's something there. Well, and, and that's what I wanted to ask, because there's two sides to this. I think it would promote a lot more efficiency in a work week. However, and I posed this at the start of the show, Tori, and I, I'm just as guilty as maybe other people. I don't think um, if you're in a desk or in a cubicle or at an office for eight hours that you're working the full eight hours. And I'm not talking about breaks. I'm just talking about I wonder, and there's some studies out there I know, and I wonder if you have that data Um, of just like on average that uh, I'm not saying people don't do their work and aren't lazy, but I also think that it's not a full eight hours like we all assume. Yeah, and I think that people, I mean, you can you can write an email and you can spend 20 minutes on it and you can write an email and spend five minutes. It just depends on, like, you know, when your next call is and how uh, packed you are um, for that day. Um, my wonder is if people will be really motivated when it first um, gets going and so they'll be really excited to get that Friday um, off and so they'll push really hard to get work done. But over time, you know, two, three years from now, will that motivation still be there or will it just be um, um, part of the normal uh, part of people's normal week and routine or I have nothing to do on Friday so after three years of this I'll just slow play it and I'll come in Friday afternoon and finish the work then or things yeah. like that the the human nature of it I do got a text here that says I uh, did the work four-day work week for our group it worked maintained 40 hours a week Monday to Thursday or Tuesday to Friday 10-hour days saved big time on commute costs and got extra day off they loved it yeah, and some people really do. I've, I know several workplaces that function that way. I think that's really hard um, on uh, parents with kids because uh, putting in a 10-hour work week, especially if you're expected to go into the office, might be really hard um, on young families and single parents especially. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a, and, and that's the thing when talking about this. Uh, there's it, it affects so many of us, but it affects so many of us in different avenues for sure. And I'm sure that that's what you're sort of hearing. What have you heard from employers about this idea? Like, is it something they, they embrace? Is it something they shun away from? Or is it something they're indifferent to as long as it's the most efficient way to get the most work done? 
as long as it's the most efficient way to get the work done, I think that they'd be willing to um, embrace it. In some cases, you hear them say things like, you know, if you if they do want to um, maintain a schedule where they've got full coverage over their uh, previous working hours, right, it can create a scheduling nightmare that uh, some employers don't, don't want to deal with. Um, but uh, I think that people are really worried about um, resignations right now. And so, you know, if this is something that makes you an employer of choice, it, it might be an easy an easy switch. Is this something that some companies are considering just because of that and the pandemic and early retirements or people just maybe, you know, going, I, I don't want to live this way anymore. I, I, there's more to life. I've learned that in the pandemic. Is this something that's being talked about more and more so with companies or employers? I think that this has just come up. I mean, I heard very, very small rumblings of it prior to the pandemic, but in the past two months, even one month, it's really come up um, as an issue. And I think employers are also saying, hey, I want that Friday off too. Like if my employees (laughs) are gone, then I don't have to work either, right? Like that's a win-win. Exactly. That's the other part I did want to weigh in on this, that that maybe the idea of having a Friday off is really appealing to employers. Uh, Tori McNally, uh, Director of Human Resource Services at Legacy Bowls, is joining me now to talk about this, which has been a big topic and and the phones lit up about it as well when I open it so I appreciate all you uh, weighing in on it as well the other thing we're talking about today Tori is and Hal Anderson brought this up on his show and in our meeting today of the idea that you get paid for work Um, so the idea that you get paid for the work you do and it doesn't revolve around hours you might still be have an office job but if this is your workload for the day and it's done in six and a half hours you're done yeah, and I, I mean, and I say this to clients all the time, saying, you know, you're actually paying for people's brains. You're not paying for um, like their bodies to be there for a certain set period of time. So I think it really, um, you know, the thing that's interesting about the UK study is that they're putting in, they're helping employers to uh, create measurables so that um, you know they can track and actually see if it's working or not. Because I think the worst thing that an employer can do is instigate this and then not know um, whether or not uh, product activity gone up or down right yeah yeah no and i could see that too but it was a fascinating concept because uh, like for example as hal said we're in a job where it's not eight hours a day it's it's often more and it's a variancy of when news breaks or whatever we're covering that day or things like that what we need to research so it's a different but there's some people out there that i wonder if you you know you came into your office you had your morning meeting this is what we expect from you and as you said you're paying for the brain and the work to be done and if it's done in eight hours, so be it. If it's done in eight and a half, so be it. But if it's done in seven, you're free to leave. Yeah, and I would and I would fully agree with that. But yeah, then we're we're bleeding into the other question of you know when your boss if you're if you're done um, at three o'clock in the afternoon, you leave early, and your boss emails you at ten to five. <laughs> you have to answer. <laughs> exactly. Now, this is the other thing I wanted to address with you. Of is um, not everybody's happy in their job. And that's why I like doing something that I do and, and have a passion for. I don't care how many hours a day it is. I still have a family. I'm trying to work around everything else. But I just enjoy what I do and I enjoy the research and the work it takes to get prepared so it doesn't bother me. Not everybody's like that, and I understand that. So that would weigh in on all these concepts too, would it not? Because if you're literally going to a place where you don't enjoy the work and you feel stuck, I don't know if any of these measures would help an individual or an employee like that. Certainly. And, you know, some people live to work and other people work to live. Right. And so, I mean, the opposite of that argument is like packed 
jam pack your Friday full of stuff that you love to do, right? And so you're like working for that three day weekend um, all the way around. But I mean, if people are upset, um, you do spend hours and hours and hours at work. So um, yeah, they should be maybe looking to switch um, to a new employer or uh, to a new career path because yeah, small band-aids aren't going to create um, boundless joy. And that's another valid point because when I say that, I've had other people reach out to me and say, you know, Jim, I love what I do too, but I don't love it as much as riding my bike around the park. I don't love it as much as going to the golf course. I don't love it as much as spending time with my kids. So although I like my work, the less I do of it, uh, there's other things for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That balance is important. Yeah, and, and I think that people are really starting to realize um, that work-life balance does, like, create motivation and passion at work, too, right? Like, if you know that you just came off a fantastic weekend where you were able to relax and you come back to work refreshed, like, that, there's, real, um, there's real studies to support that that's um, an important thing for employers to be encouraging. And it sounds like your need to go for a dog walk, so we'll yeah. keep you long enough for the work <laughs> you're doing today. And so we'll cut you this a little short, but I, I do want to leave with this. I always love uh, having you on the show to talk about what you're hearing as of late. And, and we know inflation, uh, you've been so good with us talking about how people that, you know, don't want to return to the office might find other work. What is the buzz you're hearing maybe the last month with, with the way everything is going with the cost of everything and employees and, and employers? So I think that there's a lot of, of cost of living um, increases that are happening right now, and, and that's driven by inflation for sure. Um, I think that the new legislation that just came through from the provincial government where perhaps we won't be the, the lowest minimum wage in the entire country um, if they can uh, make some changes to uh, the amount that it's going to bump up to in October, um, that's looking like it's looking likely um, that they're looking at that now. So, um, yeah, that will be a huge impact, I think, on the on the lowest uh, sector of, of Manitoba's economy for sure. Well, thank you very much, Tori. Enjoy that dog walk and always appreciate your time and your insight on these issues. Thank you. Take care. Tori McNally, Director of Human Resource Services at Legacy Bowes.